1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Geert, and uh, I'm very honored to be joined today by Professor Mark Schuylenburg. Uh, welcome, Mark. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Mark is a professor of digital surveillance at Erasmus University and also an assistant professor of criminology at the Vrije Universiteit in Amsterdam. Um, some of his, uh, his recent work uh, is uh, that he published his book, The Securitization of Society, in 2015 with NYU Press. And also a bit longer ago, in 2006, a volume called Mediapolis, published with O10 publishers. Um, but today we'll, we will be discussing with him his recent book, Hysteria, Crime, Media and Politics, originally published in 2019 and uh, translated into English uh, last year. It was an, uh, It was an exciting read. Um, maybe to start off with, Mark, going, to, going through the book, I, uh, I was astounded by the well. On the one hand, the philosophical wealth um, and the strong uh, context of of cultural history you exhibit, um, but on the other hand, combined with uh, several bouts of, of rather um, urgent uh, empirical research. Um, so it, it, I guess it was a great mix of scientific traditions, and I, I was wondering, where do you come from, professionally speaking?
2: Yeah. Uh, professionally speaking, um, I have uh, done philosophy. Uh, I have a master in philosophy and also a master in in, in law. And uh, I'm always interested in the sociological phenomena. And analyzing this sociological phenomena, as in this book, I always try to combine different methods. So on one hand, I like to make a philosophical analysis, But I also like to make this philosophical analysis more empirical. And that's why for this book, uh, I've been in the archives of Rotterdam uh, for almost a half year. And also, I did a lot of empirical research in disadvantaged neighborhoods where I talked for two years with uh, persons who are living there. I visit all kind of uh, what they are called neighborhood governance meetings. Uh, so, I try to mix it up, this book, uh, not only a pure philosophical point of view, although um, I talk uh, and I try to extend the arguments of a lot of philosophers further in this book, amongst them like Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, Sizek, uh, and so on, but I also try to combine it, this philosophical arguments which i make in this book by empirical research to make the volume uh, richer uh, in his data and also richer than in its research by itself
1: yeah and you see this this theme this great theme of uh, hysteria you see it in um, <laughs> you bring it in many different uh, um, cultural settings as well you see it in in, in the arts um, in uh well in, in, in current current news uh, current news items um, when it comes to the book hysteria um, what was your um, uh, your your specific point where you thought okay this this is going be become a book
2: yeah well it happened, I think four or five years ago um, as a professor in criminology and a professor in uh, in surveillance I'm invited um, quite a quite often to uh, give my opinion on television or radio or in the written paper in opinion articles, but especially when I'm on television um, and I'm interviewed, for instance, about the level of public safety in the Netherlands and in other European countries, and if I tell the, the audience uh, on public television that actually we live in a very, very safe society, uh, then the other day I find dozens of angry emails in my email box scandalous get a proper job uh, you're sucking up the left wing press educate yourself um, these are among the least hostile comments i have received in recent years um, i always mail these persons back and then they start a conversation and then i see that all the emotions and the frustration and the angriness by these people when i tell them that actually we are in a very safe place so I wanted with this book to place these emotions and frustrations in a wider sociological perspective, uh, which I hope I have received uh, achieved in this book, and uh, by doing this, um, taking grant of all the angriness and frustration that is in society, but placing this angriness and frustration in society not on an individual level, were the emails, but on a broader historical, sociological, and in the end philosophical perspective.
1: Maybe, um, maybe to get to the uh, the concept of, uh, concept of hysteria. Then, um, of course, originally and perhaps most prominently, hysteria was uh, well. It had a purely clinical definition. Um, maybe to go back to that, what did what did hysteria designate as an, as an individual disease then?
2: Yeah, well, hysteria was always, it's the oldest disease, actually, of mankind. And it was always a big lemma in the DSM. And the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders. And this DSM is used by doctors worldwide to diagnose our conditions. And what struck me, and I didn't know that, is that at the end of the 1980s, hysteria disappeared uh, from the handbook from DSM handbook. And I try to find out uh, what the reason was behind this, eh? because we all know the whole idea of hysteria as emotions that pop up, screaming persons, all kinds of behavior that's not, at least in our vision, rational anymore. So I try to find out why hysteria does not exist anymore, at least as a medical diagnosis. And then you see uh, all kinds of arguments being made uh, in and around the DSM, for instance, they want to get rid of the legacy of Sigmund Freud. And we all know that hysteria uh, was for Sigmund Freud, an an important way of analyzing his cases, uh, always female cases. So especially the American tradition of psychology has nothing more in common with the legacy of Sigmund Freud. We also see at that time that what comes up is evidence-based thinking. Uh, evidence-based thinking that with clear methods, clear objectives, you can have some results and all the history of hysteria is very difficult to pinpoint at a clear definition at a clear diagnosis uh, at a clear validity and so on. And also, uh, and that was, I think, the most important reason why hysteria is abandoned out of the DSM is that it is a very... Yeah, what you could call it, stigmatization term. Uh, it was always appointed, always directed to women, almost never to men, and always was women considered to be hysterical. Uh, while, for instance, a silent man was considered deep. But an outspoken woman was also always termed hysterical. So, and I think that's the third re- main reason, and it's a very valid reason, that as a medical diagnosis, uh, hysteria suddenly, totally disappeared out of, us, out of our society. But then you only need to look around eh, or to turn on television or go online and you recognize it everywhere. Hysteria is everywhere eh? from the worldwide run on toilet paper amid the coronavirus uh, crisis, uh, the war against everything from corona to security to public safety, the madness of the housing market, the heated debates on climate change, while hysteria dominates the world states. So in a way, I tried in this book to analyze hysteria, not from the angle of a medical uh, disease, with all the disadvantages that comes up with that, but I tried to analyze it as a sociological relevant term because it raises the question why our lives, which seems to run very smoothly for many people, are nevertheless so hysterical. Or so, to phrase and- it in another way, why is hysteria appearing at this moment after certain events in these periods? So I try to switch it from a medical diagnosis to a more sociological diagnosis of our current society.
1: And and um, um so, what would if if we would look at a hysterical individual uh, designated by somebody like Freud uh, as hysterical? What would such a figure look like?
2: Well, you see, in his uh, cases of uh, in his female cases, it, it, it was at least from the point of 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 uh, uh, of, uh, of Sigmund Freud, always uh, uh, the idea that you um, know. Well, um, I do a frame it um, that the cause of hysteria uh, was a psychological or subconscious conflict eh, that finds a, a physical outlet in all kinds of hysterical attacks. And he described, at least Freud, this process as the repression of unpleasant memories and inappropriate thoughts, uh, rooted always in traumatic, often sexual experiences, which are subsequently expressed through all kinds of sy- symptoms. Such as paralysis, extreme stiffness, reduced appetite, uh, mood swings, headaches, depression, insomnia, uh, emotional speeches, and so on. And this was the psychological angle uh, of hysteria. It's one of the three angles I discern in this book. How you can look at from an historical perspective uh, to this phenomenon of hysteria.
1: Yeah, I see, um, uh, and and. So, it's, it's repressed psychological uh, elements that, that turn to, that, that express themselves in physical uh, discomfort or strange behaviors.
2: Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was already, uh, if you look at the history, like I, I told you, it's the oldest disease of mankind. You'll uh, find traces of hysteria uh, in the Egyptian times and after that in the Greek times, because the ancient Greek and the Latin term hystericus. Uh, is derived from the uterus uh, also the Latin word, hustera means the womb of the woman. And it was believed at least from Egyptian times to the middle ages, that hysteria was caused by the womb of the women traveling through her body and triggering then a host of different symptoms on its way. Um, and it dates already from 1900 before Christ where all medical, all female medical complaints were attributed to the wandering womb. Uh, there were uh, descriptions then, for instance, on Monday, uh, the womb was thought to settle in the throat. On Tuesday, it lashes onto the heart, causing nausea and vomiting. On Wednesday, it picks up the liver, making the woman lose her voice and grind the teeth, and so on. And the whole idea was in order for hysteria to be cured, the womb of the woman must return to its natural place. And you see that all kinds of way of achieving this, uh, which of course had a hi- highly sexual nature. Uh, Hippocrates, for instance, advised women suffering from hysteria attacks to moisten the womb in order to keep it from getting dehydrated, preferable by having sex. Uh, in the French manual, the Medicine pratique from 1800, they were suggesting to letting female uh, women sniffed the smell of singing leather or pouring bitter flutes into her mouth also to encourage the womb to return to its place. And this was the somatic point of view towards hysteria. So there was a psychological point of view it starts with Freud. And this was the most classic uh, way of looking at hysteria, a more somatic uh, view that started already in the Egyptian times and endured at least till 1700-1800 when English doctors found out that of course it was impossible for a womb to wander around in the female body.
1: A fascinating idea. Um, Maybe because okay you 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 indicate that it has it has disappeared from the from the medical uh, realm but what elements of this notion of hysteria uh, do we now see in um, in the irrational group behaviors that you uh, that you described? Well, you still
2: see that, that a lot of symptoms that in the history were attributed to hysteria, like these emotions, these mood swings, uh, this language, always talk about this exaggerated language that we are always in war with everything. And also the feeling of uh, victimhood that was also one of the diagnoses of hysteria, that this emotional outburst, and especially nowadays because it hysteria is turned from, a single body to collective phenomenon. Eh? It's always mass hysteria. Uh, there's this emotional outburst of hysteria. There's always collective, that is part of, of an exaggerated language and by a feeling of a victimhood of a bigger, a darker uh, force, that is still being the case with a lot of subjects I analyze in my book.
1: What would you say? <laughs> Because you give a great exhibition of these uh, different uh, works of works of art from history, um, are there any cases where where we see, for instance, in a famous painting or so, uh, a prime example of this uh, this hysteria as a, as a as a group phenomenon?
2: Well, well, well. Uh, for instance, not as a group phenomenon, but but uh, one. Example of one famous example is, of course, the hysterical, uncontrolled laughter of the Joker uh, in the eponymous film by uh, Todd Phillips. Uh, After the Joker in his movie loses medication and counseling because of all kind of budget costs, uh, you see that hysteria takes place in him. And and by his laughter and by his actions, uh, he's portrayed as an hysterical figure. But you also see it uh, yeah, in a lot of uh, literature, especially from the 18th century and the 19th century. Uh, you see it in the paintings of Francis Bacon, yeah? for instance, his famous baking, uh, paintings of the Pope, which uh, were described by the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze as hysterical paintings. So you see it in a movie, in literature, in paintings. Uh, you can allocate all these places. Uh, by pointing out and by directing out, or by describing or by trying to get in touch will with this, uh, like I uh, told you, the oldest disease of mankind.
1: Yeah, I understand. Um, so applied to security, to the field of security, uh, you indicate that um, many of our responses to a certain uh, security incident are, exaggerated and irrational. Um, and that's what we, what we might indicate as uh, hysterical. Um, why, how, how is this um, um, hysterical rather than, say, uh, pessimist?
2: Well, I call it hysterical because I trace the language of politicians, for instance, towards uh, an incident or an accident with public safety back uh, to Hobbes. Uh, if you look at uh, the talk, how politicians talk about public safety, it's always in an exaggerated uh, uh, language. It's always We're always in war, for instance. We're in war with loitering youth in the Netherlands. We're in war with terrorists. We're in war with corona. We're in war with drugs. Always this aggression and this language of, of war, by any means necessary, to tackle a concrete problem. But like I told you, I'm also a criminologist. So I study uh, public safety and security from a more longer angle than pure incidents. And if you look for instance at the Netherlands, but also at other European countries, and also at the United States, you see that criminality declines from approximately in Western Europe from 2000 on till this day. And on every scale, eh? on murders, on manslaughter, uh, there are of course, of course are exceptions, eh? like uh, online fraud, but that's very understandable because our society has turned t- totally digital. But all of the other objects or subjects from manslaughter to murder to theft to burglary goes down and down and down since 2000. But if you hear a minister of public safety speak, in the Netherlands or in any other country, then still you think we live in the most unsafe place on earth. He always speaks about this war. He always speaks of new measures, of new rules, of severe punishments and so on. So in one way, I try to understand where this comes from, this language of hysteria. and You can trace it down to Hobbes. But uh, I also try to understand why still politics talk in this way about sociological phenomenon as, for instance, public safety and security. And you see then, and that's one of the conclusions in my book, that hysteria, of course, has, uh, medically speaking, no longer exists. Uh, I told you that it was uh, left out of the DSM at the end of the 1980s. So from a medical point of view, there is no hysteria anymore. But from a sociological point of view, and that's the main conclusion in my book, if you look at the economy, if you look how social media functions, if you look how uh, issues like public safety functions, how politicians talk about these issues, uh, the conclusion of my book has been that hysteria is no longer a medical model, but has turned into a business model in areas like economy, social media and
0: politics.
1: Fascinating, um, and I, I, I do. Uh, it's it's very visible that um, even if there is a period of very little, very little security incidents, once there is one single very violent incident in uh, taking place in the country, suddenly this fills all the newspapers and uh, uh, this fills all of our consciousness. So, in that in that sense, I understand what you mean with um, with it being a business case. Um, can you, could you also give an, an uh, example of a um, more economic business case of this, uh, this, this hysterical uh, uh, feeling?
2: Well, uh, I live in, uh, in Rotterdam, very close, for instance, to the uh, Apple store. And when uh, a new iPhone is invented, huh? then you see uh, people line up there uh, sleeping in front of the store. And everybody knows uh, that that, uh, the iPhone 13 is not that much different than the iPhone 12. And we all also know that the money we pay for the iPhone 13 is not really worth it. Still, uh, the whole idea of the movement from an iPhone 12 to an iPhone 13 gets people out of their beds, sleep, in front of shops and so on. But you see it also on uh, Black Friday, eh, the famous consumer day, where people hop up, um, scramble, uh, fight to get, at least as they think, uh, all kind of bargains in shop. till so everybody knows that on Black Friday there almost there are always no bargains at all. Yeah, but still, you refer me to uh, economy, uh, the invention of a new iPhone or black friday that causes so much frustration and uh, emotions in us that we want to get this good and that we try to do everything to get it uh, by sleeping in front of the stores by fighting it by running into it and so on I, I, I do agree that there's
1: this, uh, this uh, or no, I don't I, know, I do see that this, there's this um, super rational, hyperactive, exaggerated behavior uh, towards certain phenomena. Um, I was also struck because on the one hand, hysteric, hysteria seems to be quite a defining term of our age, our, our decade, our, our way current way of life. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also this sort of wave of um, more, uh, lethargical phenomena such as, phenomena, such as uh, uh, burnout. Do, do, do you have an idea whether that uh, uh, there's a relation?
2: Well, at the same time, it's not all uh, only a burnout. It's also a stress. Uh, and in, in some way, uh, at least I start with my book uh, at that point that now, uh, these people tend to go uh, uh, to uh, uh, doctors uh, for the stress, for the burnouts and one way of explaining this is that we are now live in a society uh, which you could define as a society which has a moral overdrive and in one way this moral overdrive of, of our society that every, uh, everything needs to get faster uh, sooner uh, more efficient uh, that we live of course also in a neoliberal uh, age of thinking um, uh, where there is no social glue anymore between us in our society that we're totally dependent on ourselves in a way I think that's one of the reasons that hysteria is now so much around us as we see it it's very difficult for a lot of people to live up I think, or to live in, in current times A question says, who am I? Where do I belong? How important is my language, my culture, my history? All these questions are not answered in a neoliberal discourse. And at the same time, you see that that all kinds of social meeting places, uh, ranging from youth clips to cornerstones, uh, has disappeared or been replaced by big corporations. Um, And in that way, you see that our current society, which has turned totally global. Uh, We're driven by neoliberal thinking and social media, that in a way um, we feel, and that's one of the conclusions of my book, that the whole notion of belonging and of care and of trust, this is notions that are opposite of frustrations and anger, that these notions Especially belonging, feeling safe at a place, in some way or in another way, have becoming now, or have disappeared, or at stake. And in the end, I try to focus uh, on that angle uh, to explain why so many people nowadays feel, in some way, uh, hysterical.
1: Did you did you see this? because you, you, you went into uh, these uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, for instance, Helle uh, Sluis in, in Rotterdam. Uh, did you see this expressed uh, during that research?
2: Yeah, Helle uh, uh, Sluis is uh, one of the five neighborhoods were very disadvantaged neighborhoods in Rotterdam. And they, all these neighborhoods are on the south part of Rotterdam. And in these neighborhoods... Um, still, if you compare it to other neighborhoods, still very safe neighborhoods, but if you compare it to the other neighborhoods on the other side of Rotterdam, are more unsafe neighborhoods. And the uh, council, uh, the municipality of Rotterdam, invented a couple of years ago, uh, neighborhood governance. And that means that officials of the municipality and the police and other organizations, public organizations, uh, go to the neighborhood itself Ask uh, if people want together in this neighborhood governance, and the whole idea is that these people in Hillesluis raise then the biggest concerns what's going on in the neighborhood, and they make a top three out of it. And with this top three, next is the next step: the police and the municipality has to do something with this top three of annoyments of problems which are raised by the uh, people themselves. So I spent two years in neighborhood governance in Hillesluis, in the south of Rotterdam, with the topics they, I was curious at which topics they come up with, but also uh, what the solutions are of the municipality and police to tackle these topics. And then in two years' time, you see that the boards and the meetings I was in with these people who live in Hillesluis we're getting more emotional and emotional, and the discussion uh, became more frustrated. And there was more anger, and more people were leaving neighborhood government. And why? Uh, because the police and the municipality did nothing with the problems they picked out, or with the solutions they came up by themselves to tackle <laughs> these problems. So, in one way, the whole uh, model of neighborhood governance, which was invented to calm down citizens, because the whole idea was we hear you and we do something about your problems, turned upside down. It was actually turned out after two years a vehicle for more hysteria, because at all the meetings I was, people were getting more anger, more frustrated, and why? Because in the end, the municipality and the police will actually listen to them, but did nothing do with the problems they raised or they collected in the neighborhood. It turned out to be a vehicle for hysteria, instead a vehicle for listening and calming down uh, their emotions.
1: Um, I, uh, I, want, I wanted to turn to the positive note at the end of the interview, but um, um, this seems a good bridge to uh, what you also indicate uh, hysteria as... Um, you, you indicate that hysteria is also sort of a potentially positive force. Um, did I get it correctly that, that, that it that it's, has the potential to turn into a kind of rebellion? And did you, did you see this in, in Rotterdam?
2: Well, I didn't see it in, in Rotterdam, but at the end of the book, I, I make a switch. Uh, and I distinguish then two types of hysteria. And also the common type of hysteria is what I saw in these meetings, but I also see it in politics, in economy, on social media and the language we use, the war against everything. And I frame that as a negative hysteria. But at the same time, I think hysteria and the history of hysteria shows that can also uh, bring hope in that it can galvanize people into action In the same way, as you rightly tell, as a revolution can overthrow the establishment. If you look, for instance, from a historical point of view at hysteria, uh, you see that at the end of the 19th century, so-called hysteria epidemics break out everywhere in Europe. And women were then diagnosed, rightly or not rightly, with hysteria and were locked up in hospitals and so on. But at the same time, in this Victorian area, at the same time, while many sufferers being institutionalized, it also inspired at that time social reforms aimed at giving women the same rights and opportunities as men. So the tightly laced course had disappeared and making space for more liberal views on marriage or sexuality and the right to work. And this is not hysteria, I think, in its most destructive, sinister form in which people will tear off their clothes and pull out of their hair. I'm talking now about a more constructive hysteria which sets things in motion and can do good. It's an engine for change in way making a contribution uh, to the world. It acts for the greater good rather than out of self-interest. And here you see a political angle on hysteria. That hysteria can also mean that it can revolutionize or change the society uh in a better way and what's
1: then the matter because this
2: is about the actions of,
1: of uh, citizens so to say um, is there also a message for say people who actually make policy what can they do about this can they harness this energy should they uh, uh, try and work towards calming everybody down
2: no, it's it's not oh, of course uh, calming people down. No, no, these fr- emotions, frustration are always important, and in some way, I think it's good if people out them. So, so I have no problem at all with uh, anger and with uh, these frustrations, frustrations we describe. I have no problem at all with it. I only think that um, if you're making policy, for instance, and let's make the example of public safety again. So with public safety, if you look at the history of the word security and the history of the word uh, safety, for instance, in the Netherlands, uh, then um, in the Netherlands, it has two meanings. In one way, it has a negative meaning, and this negative meaning is all about combating, fighting, crime, and disorder. And this is the language of the war. But at the same time, this is shows by the history of the words of the Dutch word for uh, security. The Dutch word is derived uh, from the Middle Dutch word veilig and the Old Frisian word veilig is from the 13th and 14th century. But that word, the original word of security, also means loyalty, trustworthiness, friendliness, belonging, feeling safe at a place. And You see the same um, angle in the Swedish word and also in the German word which is untranslatable in English. But it, means, it also means or points out to a feeling that you're in a place which offers shelter and protection and feeling at home, for instance, a sense of belonging, as we put it in English, that invokes also a sense of security. So as a politician or a policymaker, you can do at least two things. Of course, you had to combat crime and disorder, I had no issue about it. But at the same time, you can also pinpoint to the second angle of the word security. And that is offer care, offer trust that people feel at home. And also these things, which I frame not as negative security, but as positive security, This requires a total different language, not a language of war, total different tools than repressive instruments and a business like social contracts. In other words, how can you think about security without resorting to police, repression, to war, and so on? And this, in policy terms, it means that alongside the negative definition, security can also be understood in a more inclusive, affirmative manner. And in the latter case, I think it's more an issue of care and trust and uh, belonging than in the first uh, angle of the word, the negative security.
1: Well, that's a, that's a great note. I think we should uh, actually conclude on that uh, to, to end things with a positive feeling. Um, maybe. um maybe two, two more uh two more things so first of all i would like to point out to our listeners that there's uh, another um empirical chapter um in which you de- delved into the uh the archives uh surrounding the riots and uh well may- maybe you can just briefly uh bring this up what you did
2: yeah uh, one chapter is on the history of race riots in the netherlands and in the early 1970s, there was a big race riot in the Netherlands. And it took for a, a week, for seven days, where local uh, people in, in neighborhoods were throwing Molotov cocktails and, uh, into uh, houses of Turkish and Moroccan people. And in that chapter, I was interested in the language politicians at that time used to describe or to analyze these race riots in the Netherlands because we know from sociological literature, uh, there's always been the famous notion of moral panic. Uh, The notion uh, comes from Stanley Cohen, uh, that there is some kind of uh, um, uh, way of how these kind of events are described in media, in tabloids, and then are taken up in politics and then lead to all kinds of measures. But what I found by going into the archives, uh, of the Netherlands, that at that time, politicians spoke in a, spoke in a very calm, reflective way about these race riots. They didn't point out to the immigrants. They didn't point out to the local neighborhoods, but they tried to make up all kinds of solutions uh, to it. So, so there was no moral panic. Uh, well, moral panic is always described to this kind of phenomena for instance, race riots. And in this chapter, I try to find out in, in which way uh, moral panic is not the uh, correct instrument to analyze these kind of uh, uh, examples. And I also try to find out in which way panic is different than hysteria. And I also try to find out why in the 70s, people took a total different language towards immigrants than nowadays you see with all kinds of right wing uh, uh, parties, we will talk in the way of they are wolves or they're coming in to rape our daughters. And that's the language in the Netherlands, uh, which is much used when right wing parties talk about immigrants or people who come from foreign countries to our country. But at that time, and it's only 50 years ago, there was a total different language. There was no moral panic after these riots. So I tried to find out in the archives what was the main reason behind this fascinating
1: maybe um to conclude so is this uh the direction that your future research is uh, taking as well or is there a different study or book project that you're working on currently
2: now um, I'm, I'm a professor of uh, digital surveillance so i'm i'm writing now a, a book on surveillance especially surveillance with big data and algorithms also, there you see, uh, of course, uh, a little bit of hysteria, but more in the sense that the people still think that technology is the uh, solution to everything, eh? what uh, Morozov called this techno And with this book, I try to give a more ethical and a more calm and a more nuanced way of looking into what's happening nowadays with the surveillance that's taking place all around us but also more ethical concern how we must deal with algorithms and the, all the disadvantages of algorithms in instruments, for instance, like predictive policing, which turns out in, in a, a lot of cases to be discriminatory, to be to deal out um, to turn out self-fulfilling uh, and to have racist elements in it by itself. Um, I'm working now on this book, and hopefully it will be published in in a couple of years
1: seems like a very urgent topic, um, also in the Netherlands, but also abroad. Um, Well, thank you once again for uh, giving us a sneak peek into the book. And uh, I would uh, warmly invite everybody to to take a look as well. Um, Let me wish you a very pleasant day. And uh, thank you once again, uh, Professor Mark Schadenberg.
2: Thanks for the conversation.
1: All right. Bye-bye.